Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org, to the A World View of History Room. And we are here to discuss the overall topic of A World View of History. The date is October 20th, 2010, and Don Queen, our chairman, has chosen a wonderful book on the Cold War for us to discuss tonight. So without further ado, I give the microphone over to Don Queen. Thank you, Bob, and good evening, everybody. Our book for tonight is The Cold War, A New History by John Lewis Gaddis. Wikipedia states that he is a noted historian of Cold War and grand strategy, and the New York Times has declared him the Dean of Cold War Historians. He is presently the Robert L. Lovett Professor of Military and Naval History at Yale University, as well as visiting professor at the Naval War College, Princeton, and Helsinki University. I might add here that he received the National Humanities Medal from George W. Bush in November 2005 after declaring his support for the Bush grand strategy of continued American hegemony, nation-building, and preemptive strikes. Caddis justifies this by stating that the Cold War strategy of deterrence was ineffective against an enemy committed to self-destruction, and therefore these more aggressive strategies are necessary. But let's get back to 1946, when the victorious Western Allies began to realize that their wartime friend, Joseph Stalin, had plans to impose communism in all the countries he presently occupied, as well as possibly Western Europe. Last time, I saw it all coming. I cried aloud to my own fellow countrymen and to the world, but, uh, but no one paid any attention. Up till the year 1933, or even 1935, Germany might have been saved from the awful fate which had overtaken her. And we might all have been spared the miseries Hitler let loose upon mankind. There never was a war in history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which had just desolated such great areas of the globe. It could have been prevented, in my belief, without the firing of a single shot. And Germany might be powerful, prosperous, and honored today. But no one would listen. And one by one, we were all sucked into the awful whirlpool. Miss Shirley, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you, surely we must not let that happen again. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. What is needed is a sudden 
And the longer this is delayed, the more difficult it will be, and the greater our danger will become. What, a, what I have seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength. And there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Yale historian John Lewis Gaddis, a prominent scholar of the Cold War, has now written a new history of the long conflict, his first since the Cold War actually did end, where he re-examines the role of ideology and leadership, the strengths and weaknesses of nuclear weapons, the management of alliances, why the West won, why that's important, and how the Cold War shaped our world today. And he joins us now from a studio on the campus in New Haven, Connecticut, and welcome to Talk of the Nation. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Neil. And I wanted to begin by asking you that same question I put to A.J.P. Taylor uh, 20 or 25 years ago. Did you have any idea how the Cold War would end? No. With all due respect to Professor Taylor, it was certainly not obvious to me in 1984 how the Cold War would end. Well, it wasn't obvious to him either. He just said when it happened, it would be obvious to everybody. It's one of those things. I'm not sure that's completely true even to this point, and uh, that's partly why I wrote this book, is to uh, try to step back from that experience and um, look at what happened from the distance of some 15 years or so. And uh, I think it's always the case with history when you back off of it when time passes. It looks different from the way it looked at the time. And, of course, uh, knowing the outcome, it all seems inevitable. But one of the points you make at the beginning of your book was that in 1948-1949, uh, it was far from clear which side was going to win this struggle. I think one of the great challenges for historians is to uh, deny inevitability because nothing is really inevitable. Things look inevitable after they've happened, but part of our challenge in writing about the past is to show that things could have happened in a quite different way. And indeed, uh, uh, in a couple of circumstances, uh, had things happened in a different way, uh, this world would be dramatically different. This world might not even be here as we know it if things had happened um, in a different way in a couple of circumstances. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you say that, indeed, the experience of the Cold War goes against the entire history of human nature, which has always been that if you invent a new weapon, well, glory be, let's get to using it. <laughs> that's right. I think there are very few instances in history that I can think of in which um, weapons have been developed uh, and not used. Uh, stones, Music. bows and arrows, slingshots coming all the way up through bombers and battleships. Uh, weapons developed have always been used uh, fairly quickly after their development. And what's distinctive about the Cold War is that the most powerful of all weapons, nuclear weapons, 
were developed. They were used twice to end World War II, but then they were not used again. And I think this is a remarkable and astonishing development. Before we get lots of emails, uh, Professor Gaddis does include a caveat for the the, uh, the the agreement not to use poison gas during the Second World War. Uh, but Which was a tacit agreement, not a formal agreement, but it was just a mutual understanding on both sides. But that's the only exception that I can think of. And this is uh, uh, something uh, you give credit to somebody um, who is not generally regarded as a, uh, a great strategist of the Cold War, Dwight David Eisenhower, uh, for coming up with a solution to this problem of nuclear weapons, which was, you say, at the same time, both brutal and very subtle. Well, by this I mean Eisenhower in presiding over war planning um, in the American government simply said that the idea that we could fight a limited nuclear war or a partial nuclear war um, was ridiculous, that the only thing to do was to prepare to fight a total all-out uh, nuclear war. And his gamble was that uh, the prospect of doing that would be sufficiently horrible that nobody on our side or on the other side would ever contemplate doing such a thing. And um, I think he turned out to be right. Hmm. Do you, in the end, think that deterrence, uh, in other words, this carefully balanced uh, power between uh, the United States and, and, and the Soviet Union in those days, and throw the British and the French in on the American side, sort of, uh, in terms of the French, uh, but the, uh, uh, that this great you know, masses of arsenals, did deterrence work, or was it uh, some other mechanism that prevented us from, from blowing each other up? Well, deterrence worked in the sense that we didn't have a third world war. Uh, part of the problem in assessing this is, did anybody have a plan to start a third world war in the first place? I think the evidence on that is still inconclusive from the uh, Soviet side. The answer is probably not, but accidents uh, can happen, of course. What strikes me as really uh, significant is that whereas deterrence set out to be something that the Soviets were trying to do to the Americans and the Americans were trying to do to the Soviets, mm -hmm. the instruments by which they were doing this, nuclear weapons, wound up deterring both of them. So there was a third party involved, which was the technology itself. Hmm. Uh, there were, uh, for example, during the war, and you point out this, uh, you know, mirror-like uh, world where logic didn't seem to obtain very well in the whole idea of mutual assured destruction, uh, but that the, uh, the, the Americans at, at various points said, we will only target military targets, and as you point out, from uh, the receiver's end, it would have been hard to tell the difference. Absolutely. I think it was a totally false uh, distinction, and it was back to this idea that somehow you could fight a controlled nuclear war. It's the, it's the idea that Eisenhower simply never bought. Hmm. And at the end of the day, uh, you conclude that somehow uh, by this mutual decision not to use these most terrible of all weapons, that the nature of power was changed by the, by the Cold War. Well, I think that's right, because um, look at the Soviet Union. It collapses with all of its military power, all of its nuclear weapons um, intact, and yet it goes down the tubes. So that kind of power obviously was not very effective. Power is supposed to sustain and support the state, and this kind of power did not. Let's, uh, let's talk with Terry. Terry uh, calling us from Mankato, Minnesota. Hey, hi, Neil. How are you doing? I love your show. Uh, I have a question. Um, I was stationed in, in Wiesbaden, Germany, during the Cold War in 79 and 80, and uh, we deployed. We had a deployment of the Fulda Gap, where, uh, you know, that's where the big Soviet invasion was supposed to come through the Boulder Gap. Anyway, two people in my platoon, in my, oh yeah, my platoon of my company were killed in the 
a training accident and just an accident in the billets. And those would be two casualties that were not brought about by any gunfire or any bombs dropping. And I was just wondering, is there any way of knowing, uh, you know, the total casualties that can be attributed to uh, uh, the Cold War in a, in a whole no, I don't think there is, because um, when you're deploying military forces, as, as you know very well, there are all kinds of accidents uh, that can happen along the way. So uh, I don't think we have anything close to an accurate figure of the number of people who might otherwise had have lived if the Cold War had not been fought. I think all we can say is that a lot more people lived for the fact that the Cold War did not somehow get into a hot war. Yes, indeed. I yeah. agree entirely. And, and any calculation of casualties, uh, thanks for the call, Terry. Uh, any calculation of casualties would, of course, have to include all those killed in the wars in Korea and Vietnam as well, as well as interventions in Afghanistan, uh, in Czechoslovakia, and Hungary. But you would also have to count the casualties, it seems to me, of the um, internal repression that came from internal repression during the Cold War or came from mismanagement uh, during the Cold War. So it's not just battlefield casualties, but it's um, death by government and the hugest uh, death toll of all, uh, which is something like 30 million, comes as a result of uh, Mao's uh, policies in China, the Great Leap Forward, which itself was a Cold War development. A Cold War development in what sense? A Cold War development in the sense that Mao is trying to overtake uh, the Soviet Union and ultimately to overtake uh, Britain and the United States. And he believed that he could do crash industrialization, crash collectivization of agriculture. He believed that he could accelerate economic development, accelerate um, history itself. And the, the results were horrendous. Uh, let's get another caller in on the conversation. This is Jim. Jim calling from Canton, Ohio. Um, yes, um, I, I disagree with the precept that the Cold War has ended. I believe it's more of a, a truth. Um, and I think the evidence of that is that when the Warsaw Pact disbanded in Europe, NATO remained. And not only remained, but it's expanding. We're expanding into uh, the Baltic states, the Caucasus, Central Asia. And in the global perspective, we're, we're surrounding the Soviets, I mean Russia. And, you know, our power has greatly... Enhanced, increased since the so-called end to the Cold War, and further evidence would be the uh, existence of FDI. We're going forward with that. We're going forward with the MX missile. Um, there's no nuclear disarmament, and we have a militarist uh, government. Is the Cold War really over, John Lewis Gaddis? <laughs> Well, that's about uh, five different provocations in that question, it seems to me. Uh, let me deal with the main one, which is the question, was the, is the Cold War over? It depends on whether you capitalize those words Cold War or not. If you put it in lower case and say Cold War uh, in the sense of rivalries between nations, no, the Cold War is still going on, and the Cold War uh, went on long before the events of 1945 to 1991. If you put it in capital letters and say the Cold War as the confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States, the confrontation between capitalism and communism, uh, that's over. The Soviet Union no longer exists. Uh, communism is no longer a sustainable ideology. That's history. And that was the history that I was writing about in the book. Uh, Professor Gaddis, you were talking a few minutes earlier about the role of ideology and this is something really you trace back in terms of the ideological struggle between the U.S. and the USSR, uh, not necessarily just beginning with the Cold War, but uh, beginning with uh, Woodrow Wilson and the 14 points. 
Well, I would even trace it back earlier than that. I would trace it back to Karl Marx in the beginning of the uh, in the middle of the 19th century because it really was a contest over how to organize an economy and from that how to organize a um, civil society. And it seems to me much of the question um, revolved around the issue of whether society is better organized uh, from the top down in a command economy method or spontaneously from the bottom up in a way that allows a considerable amount of autonomy for politics and for economic development. And that argument goes all the way back to the middle of the uh, 19th century, although you're certainly right, it became dramatically intensified with um, Woodrow Wilson and Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution. And as late as uh, Nikita Khrushchev's time, uh, when he made his uh, We Will Bury You speech, uh, um, this was still, uh, communism still represented a an economic challenge uh, to uh, the West. Everybody remembered the failures of the Great Depression. Well, that's correct, and that's part of my challenge in teaching the subject to my uh, students because they can't, uh, they can't figure out, they can't understand how communism could ever have had um, any significant appeal. So I have to go back to the events of um, World War I. Uh, I have to go back to the events of the Great Depression. I have to go back to the collapse of the democracies in the um, 1930s that led to World War II to show them that for anybody who came out of those experiences, uh, both capitalism and democracy could have seemed like uh, very flawed doctrines. And so a more authoritarian solution could have had and did have a considerable amount of appeal. What's interesting about the Cold War is that that trend was reversed. And somehow by about the time that Khrushchev made his we will bury you uh, statement, uh, it was clear that, uh, in fact, that was not going to happen. Then uh, why don't we turn to uh, Peter. Peter's with us from Berkeley, California. You know, I just wanted to uh, perhaps offer the opinion that it seems that, uh, to some large degree, history depends on, on who won or who perceives themselves to have won and who does the writing. You know, last year when President Reagan died, there was an awful lot of press coverage to the effect of, you know, how he won the Cold War. And I, I don't really think that's supported by the historical record, which I think indicates much more strongly that Gorbachev initiated some reforms and he was very interested in, you know, recognized weaknesses in the Soviet system, but that, you know, in large part, those reforms kind of spun out of control. But, you know, the initiative goes there. Where President Reagan deserves credit, I think, is that he was able to step away from his ideological rigidity and see a bit of an opportunity there. But, you know, now, some years later, we see the Reagan won the Cold War um, kind of perspective used to as kind of a as a as an ideological argument for you know a great deal of of, of military buildup and militarism um, when that's not really uh, I think what happened. The professor Gaddis. Well, I am not going to say that Reagan won the Cold War, but I am going to say that he came close because it seems to me he played a very important role um, in this in a couple of different ways. First of all, he was the first major American leader, in my opinion, to ask the question, why did we continue to need to have a Cold War in the first place? Uh, the Cold War had become conventional wisdom at the time that he came into office. And um, he actually looked forward to the possibility that it might end, and he was doing it long before Gorbachev came into power. As far as military spending is concerned, you're right, he does accelerate uh, military spending somewhat. It had already been accelerated in the Carter administration. But many people fail to realize that Ronald Reagan was also the only nuclear abolitionist ever to be president of the United States. So he is dedicated to the idea of minimizing the danger of uh, nuclear war. And what he saw was that a military buildup could put the Soviet system under sufficient strain that it would have to choose a leader like Gorbachev 
So I do not uh, downplay his role at all. I think it was enormously important. Well, I think, uh, if I may, we were very fortunate that it ended up kind of going the Gorbachev route when it could have gone a very different route, which might have been the same outcome of, of that approach. But if I might make one other comment, um, you know, I think... Uh, call it divine intervention, you know, we really have little to credit the, 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 the fact that nuclear weapons haven't been used thus far. And, you know, I think we count our chickens before they hatch when we say, well, it's, you know, remarkable that they haven't been used because, you know, listeners may or may not know that there's still several thousand nuclear weapons pointed at the United States with a flight time of about 20 minutes, um, and many of them on a launch on warning footing. And, you know, there's been some recent articles to the effect that the nuclear situation is being destabilized by some efforts on the part of the Bush administration to kind of capitalize on a, a moment of opportunity and, and put themselves in an even stronger first strike position. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the jury's uh, regrettably very out on the use of nuclear weapons, and I think it's uh, more likely a probability than, a, than the other way, too. Well, the jury is always out as far as that goes when it comes to something like this. Nuclear weapons are not going to be de-invented, uh, regrettably. Uh, but there are two facts that are important here. There are a lot fewer nuclear weapons uh, than there were at the height of the Cold War. Uh, there is uh, much less of a deliberate hair-trigger uh, strategy of targeting uh, each side, Russians, against Americans. I would agree with you that the likelihood that a nuclear weapon uh, could be used has probably gone up since the Cold War ended. But I think that likelihood resides with the possibility of a terrorist or a rogue state getting hold of one or two nuclear weapons and using them uh, in that way. The likelihood of a nuclear exchange involving some um, six or 7,000 nuclear weapons, which is what could have happened in the Cold War, simply is not going to happen in the post-Cold War era. Peter, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, here's an email question from John Milligan in Washington, D.C. He, he would uh, ask uh, Mr. Gaddis if you would elaborate on the key role of George Kennan and his brilliant containment strategy. Well, I have to say I'm slightly biased since I am Kennan's um, biographer. But um, I think there was one big idea that Kennan articulated. He did this as early as 1947. And it seems to me it's the idea that came closest to uh, defining American strategy in the Cold War. And that idea was simply that we did not have to have a world war with the Soviet Union. We didn't need to fight World War III. Mm -hmm. We did not need to appease them either, as uh, the democracies did Hitler in the 1930s. But there was a middle way. We could simply build up Western strength, which in his mind meant chiefly European and Japanese strength, we could build self-confident uh, societies that could sustain themselves and ultimately the ambitions and the desires of the Soviet leadership to expand their influence would be frustrated. And if they met with repeated frustration, they would eventually change their policies, they would change their system, they would change their leaders. And it seems to me this is precisely what happened uh, in the 1980s. So. Kennan looks, in retrospect, uh, very prophetic in that regard. Kennan also um, uh, was uh, someone who endorsed uh, activities by the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, these were basically um, um, operations where, uh, as you put it, the United States uh, seemingly had felt it had to act as ruthlessly as its opponents. And uh, as you quote uh, Mr. Kennan uh, much later admitting, it did not work out at all the way I had conceived it. 
Well, Kennan did not and would never have made the argument that the United States had to act as ruthlessly as its opponents did. What he did advocate and was the first to advocate was that the CIA should be given some covert action capability, but he favored keeping it extremely limited. He favored keeping it rarely used, and he favored keeping it under the tight control of the State Department. What happened was that once established, uh, the CIA took on a life of its own. Covert operations took on uh, a momentum of their own, and they very quickly went into uh, realms and into procedures that horrified Kennan. So while it's accurate to say that he first originated the idea that the CIA should have a covert action capability, it's not right to say that he favored using uh, mm. any and all means uh, in that capacity. But uh, talk a little bit more about that uh, fear that, that many had during the Cold War that uh, uh, by opposing them at every turn, we would in turn become them. Well, he said this himself, Kennan, in his famous 1947 uh, X article on the sources of Soviet conduct, uh, published in Foreign Affairs, said that the uh, worst fate that could befall us would be that encountering the Soviet Union, we would embrace their own tactics and we would wind up being like them. And he even said in another speech in that period that there is a little bit of the totalitarian inside all of us uh, waiting to come out. What I think is encouraging about the history of the Cold War is that, in fact, that never happened. The United States never came close to being like the Soviet Union, and that little bit of totalitarian that is within all of us um, never came out on our side to the extent that Kennan worried that it might. Let's talk now with uh, Frank. Frank calling us from New York City. Oh, I was wondering concerning the uh, Cold War that the Allies, perhaps they should have adopted Japan first strategy uh, to allow the uh, Nazis and Soviets to fight against each other to further weaken both sides or perhaps should the Allies have invaded through the Balkans as Churchill had suggested. I was wondering what your opinion in that regard would be. In the sense well, my opinion, my opinion is that it might have worked, but I think it was too risky to try because, uh, first of all, if you say the Soviets and the Germans fight each other, um, you have no guarantee as to who's going to win. Um, and I think it was um, better that the Germans be defeated under that circumstance. They were an even more brutal regime than the Soviets were at that point. Uh, secondly, it seems to me that um, the invasion of the Balkans risked uh, bogging down in the Balkans, and had that happened, it uh, might have been possible for the Red Army to sweep unopposed all the way to the English Channel. So uh, I'm not too unhappy with the military strategy that, in fact, was embraced in World War II. Frank? Um, because it was also a bad case where the Russians had thoroughly penetrated the U.S. government, especially through the figure of, I guess, through Alger Hiss, so that they, so that the Soviets had a advantage in terms of they they knew how hard to um, to. Uh, or they knew um, to take, all, uh, I guess, to take up. They knew the negotiating positions. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't even put it quite that far. Um, they had thoroughly penetrated the top ranks of the British intelligence establishment. And what that meant is that they knew some important um, secrets. I say in the book that they probably had a more accurate sense of the number of atomic weapons that the United States had in 1947 than the American Joint Chiefs of Staff did. 
On the other hand, they did not have uh, detailed knowledge of American planning. Um, they missed a lot simply because of their ideological uh, preconceptions. They did not see the Marshall Plan coming, and there was nothing secret about the Marshall Plan. But because of their own ideological preoccupations, their own ideological conviction that capitalists are so greedy that they can never cooperate with one another, uh, they simply failed to uh, foresee that the Marshall Plan uh, could be developed or was being developed. So there were failures of intelligence definitely on both sides. Frank, thanks very much for the call. Okay. I wanted to ask you, um, one, your book does take advantage of uh, the um, archival material that's uh, become available since the end of the Cold War, much of it from, uh, from Moscow as well. Uh, what, in retrospect, surprised you? Well, I would say my book takes advantage of the energies of my students who have used the archival materials that have appeared in Moscow. That's the more accurate way to put it. Um, what has surprised me, I think uh, what has surprised a lot of us who worked in this field is, is uh, precisely what I was alluding to in the last question, which was that ideology really did matter when the Marxist-Leninists used the jargon of Marxist-Leninism, when they talked about uh, a proletarian society, when they talked about the internal conflicts of capitalism. Um, they really did believe this. They talked in much the same way to themselves as they did uh, to us in public at the time. We had always had the idea that the public language and their own private language uh, were two different things and mm. that they had a more realistic sense of the world. Uh, that has pretty much been knocked out of the water now by the um, still limited access that we have to the uh, uh, Soviet and East European, and some Chinese material as well. One of the things that interested me, uh, the going back to the uh, intervention in Czechoslovakia in 1968, at the time, uh, this was seen in the West as, uh, well, a ruthless but a great success uh, by uh, the Soviet Union, and, and the, thus the source of the uh, famous Brezhnev doctrine that uh, uh, socialism would not be turned back, be allowed to be turned back. Uh, yet you say, uh, looking at their materials, they saw it as a failure. This is pretty clear. They saw it um, as a failure in a couple of different senses. First of all, they came close to losing control of their own troops in doing this because the troops had been told they would be liberating um, Czechoslovakia, and the Czechs made it very clear that that was not happening. Secondly, uh, the price they paid, the price the Russians paid in loss of uh, influence, particularly among European intellectuals as a result of having invaded Czechoslovakia, uh, the growth of uh, dissidents uh, against them was a pretty high price. But even further, it was just at this point that uh, Eastern Europe uh, and ultimately the Soviet Union itself um, is uh, it's becoming clear that these economies can no longer be self-sufficient, that they are dependent on Western investments and technology and even food shipments. And so it became uh, absolutely clear uh, with the Polish riots of 1970 that the Soviets could never again use military force in Eastern Europe because the result of that would be to make impossible any kind of Western economic assistance to Eastern Europe. And that economic assistance was what was keeping the Soviet system afloat in Eastern Europe. So the whole uh, Brezhnev doctrine now looks to have been a, a gigantic Potemkin village. A bluff. A bluff. Hmm. Um, it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. Um, and, and you go back, it's interesting, uh, um, the threats to use nuclear weapons at various points, going back earlier, for example, Nikita Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, you say, was convinced that uh, um, the Suez intervention in 1956 ended because the Soviet Union threatened the use of, of nuclear weapons. Well, he was convinced of this. Um, I think Eisenhower had a rather different view, but uh, Eisenhower's pressure 
on the uh, British, the French, and the Israelis was um, financial, and it was behind the scenes. Khrushchev did some public huffing and puffing, which uh, made it look as though he had had an effect on the uh, decision of uh, the British and the French and the Israelis uh, to withdraw. And I do argue in the book that he drew some lessons from this and believed that um, he could make these uh, claims to have missiles, to be willing to use them, and could extract uh, political advantages from them. Ultimately, this is probably what led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Another story told in The Cold War, A New History by John Lewis Gaddis. John Lewis Gaddis is the Robert A. Lovett Professor of History at Yale University and joined us today from a studio on the campus there. Professor Gaddis, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to you. Enjoyed it. I'm Neil Conan. It's the Talk of the Nation from NPR News. I'm standing on the outside of your shelter, looking in <laughs> while the bombs around are falling everywhere. Inside, you look so warm and safe and oh so happy. Have I ever told you that I can? Ah, memories. Well, most of us lived through all or part of the Cold War. Did this book change your impression of this time period at all? Let's open it up for discussion. I'm standing on the outside of your shelter, dear, but I hope I'm on the inside of your heart. Anyway, <laughs> what what did everybody think about the book? I loved it, but of course I was a history major and at Mount St. Joe they were so stuck on uh, before World War One that I as I've said many, many times in this group, really knew very little about after World War II and after. And it was just a nice way to kind of go down memory lane. And, you know, we, I, I live, you know, most of us have lived through this. And it was just kind of nice to hear what I would call a revisionistic view of it. Okay. Uh, yeah, he... He's sort of a post-post revisionist because he came in as a revisionist and then changed his mind, and he's still in the lead, I guess. Um, any anybody else? Okay, I think I'm coming through now. Am I coming through now? Loud and clear. Yeah, this is Tim again. I um I didn't finish the book, but I really liked it, and I'm still getting through it. I I liked it was I just thought it was very concise and very um you know, well-written and, and moved along well. And the th one of the things that he pointed out that I didn't realize was how, what, um, how much de Gaulle was really kind of a thorn in the side to the Western alliance and what a what pain he was and what problems he caused. Uh, hi, Don. Sorry. Got in here. Um, yeah, he really was, Tim. He, he was not a friend of the United States. And he was just trying to develop his own European alliances. And uh, he played both sides against the middle, uh, in my opinion. 
but Don, it was a great book, and I loved hearing the author's comments. I enjoyed the book very much also. I didn't read all of it, but I read a good portion of it. And uh, especially hearing about Reagan and what he did, I didn't realize that he did so much as far as working with Gorbachev and getting, you know, the, the pretty much the end of Russia and bringing about the, the changes that he brought about. You know, a lot of the books surprised the heck out of me because uh, it's like, you know, we've, most of us on the list here, we're, uh, we pretty much lived through this. Um, and uh, I was really surprised about Gorbachev and uh, how much he got done by doing very little. <laughs> uh, he could have just spoke up and said, well, we're going to hold the, the Soviet Union together. And, and he just kind of, I guess, when he sat on his hands. Um, I was also surprised about Ronald Reagan, and I call it the big bluff, or this space strategic space initiative, or whatever that he called it, Star Wars that we we used to call it, where um, you know he was talking about big plans to put a shield over the United States and blast all the missiles out of the sky, and uh, I was disappointed. And the only disappointment I had in the book was. Um, um, I thought they would do a little bit more on uh, Pope John Paul II and uh, and how he uh, his influence was on the Cold War. Well, a few things. Uh, yes, I lived through the Cold War. Don, I think you did too. And um, it was scary. It was frightening. And I do remember a lot of those things occurring. Of course, uh, Gatiss really makes them tells them in a concise, straightforward way, and that's what I liked about his book. You know, he didn't get drowned in what other historians said. He used uh, resources, but he said that. He said, I, you know, this is not my original work. It's what I've dug out, dug up, and uh, this is okay. Um, but um, I'm trying to see where to start here. Um, Khrushchev was really a boo, but he really almost got us into World War III. Uh, Kennedy was a new president, and uh, you had to handle the missile crisis situation and we were hoping and praying that the Russian ships would turn back and they finally did and uh, Khrushchev thought if I throw my, he used to take his shoe off and beat it on the table, if I yell loud enough I'll get what I want and, and uh, so forth. I was uh, amazed because I was kind of young with Eisenhower. I thought he, he practiced brinksmanship but he had been through World War II and he knew that we had to operate from, from strength uh, Lyndon Johnson got tied up with Vietnam. So there you go, there. Uh, I like the way he covered the revolutions in other areas. Uh, China, of course, has not collapsed. They adopted the market economy and adopted a lot of the aspects of capitalism. I guess the thing that stuck out with me is the belief by the Marxians, Marx, uh, Marx that greed would be overwhelming, that the capitalists would be so greedy that the proletariat would rise up and overthrow him. Well, we talk about corporate greed, but they do create jobs. I wish they created more of them here in the United States. But um, the greed didn't overwhelm and uh, us. And uh, another final comment, Gorbachev was a socialist, but did not believe in using force to protect socialism. The other leaders, Stalin and other guys, did. But uh, I think Gorbachev was um, was a great man. We were lucky he was he was the right man at the right time to bring about the Reagan uh, peace. And Pope John the Second, 
Reagan said to Pope John then, I don't need an army. I have Pope John II to wander all over Eastern Europe. And uh, the, the Archbishop of Krakow did a great job. You know, um, it's funny uh, because I, I was born in, in 76, um, so I should tell you how old I am. But I, I, I remember part of the Star Wars and things like that. But what I was going to get at is, is now um, <clears throat> Fidel Castro who, you know, was staunch uh, communist and, and whatnot, you know. Um, now he even says that the uh, <laughs> that communism is, isn't working, or but he still doesn't want to let go of his people. Yeah, and, and Fidel, uh, Fidel, we, um, we could have won him over. We, uh, okay. Let me stop. Okay, thank you. Dropbox is screaming at me. We lost him. We backed Batista, the dictator of Cuba. But when Fidel came out of the hills, you know, we had him at the UN, and he was uh, cooking chicken in his hotel room, arroz con pollo and all that chicken and rice. And we could have won him over, but Eisenhower, oh, no, he's a communist. Let him go. And we lost him. And um, we always said, well, if there were a free election, Fidel Castro would lose. Well, I guarantee he would win. He would win, in my opinion, in Cuba. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, he probably, you know, and and that's probably why um, he became so anti-U.S. I mean, and all these guys. I mean, look at Chavez. You know, um, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela. You know, he's he's kind of headed toward that way, and so is uh, uh, what's his name, Evo Morales of um, Bolivia. I think he's kind of headed toward that way. What really surprised me, and this this has, I guess, not a lot to do with ideology, but the description of Stalin and uh, him being a very short man, um, that surprised me. But the thing that I keep hearkening back on is you always hear about the terrible treacheries of Adolf Hitler and killing the seven million Jews, but look at what Stalin did with in the 1930s and during the war, killing 11 million people. I mean, these people, it, it just, I, I, I'm convinced that communism might have survived if the leaders hadn't gotten so greedy. I mean, we have no idea what how they lived. Uh, you know, they probably had hordes of money somewhere um, that was taken from the people. I don't, you know, that's just my summation of it. Well, I was uh, kind of bouncing in and out of here, but I, don't, I think the Cold War as we knew it may be over, but I think the big powers, China... In the United States, Soviet Union is kind of split up, but um, there's economic, there's an economic Cold War for sure. Uh, but I, I just, I hope to believe that the big powers, China and the United States and Soviet Union, would not engage in nuclear war. It would be a terrorist. I agree that he'd, he'd have a couple of weapons or one in a suitcase and maybe cause havoc in a city here in this country, God forbid, and then we go traipse him at, after him. Uh, but I, I do commend Reagan. It was his watch, and I think he should get the credit, and Bush followed through, and I think uh, it was great. I mean, the Cold War, the, the Russian government collapsed unto itself. 
Uh, but I think Gorbachev was the right man at the right time, the man that Reagan could deal with. Well, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure the Cold War is over, simply because the balance of power has now shifted to the Middle East, and you have Iraq and Iran, and you even have third world countries like India who are all working on nuclear weapons. And where did they get the ideas, and where are they getting their weapons? It's the old Russian weapons that they've gotten. Yeah, well, uh, I guess starting... Started. I like the way Gorbachev, he classified the, um, our allies and the Russians' allies, and he blames the allies for prolonging the Cold War in some extent, that is, the unaligned countries. And then he puts France and mounts uh, the China into the same camp as troublemakers and creating troubles. And Mao created a lot more trouble for Khrushchev and Brezhnev than... <laughs> Uh, he wanted to go back to the days of Stalin, I guess, but uh, I, I think that was uh, uh, a, a real good point he, he made. And I forgot what your original point is. I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to say I think we're right about uh, we messed up with uh, uh, Cuba. And um, I think, uh, but uh, he's finally, you know, uh, He's finally saying, "Let's uh, uh, communism doesn't work," but it's it's been a long time, and uh, he's getting pretty old. Yeah, and I mean, uh, his brother Raúl, you know, who's supposedly running the country, but I mean, he's he's just a puppet for Fidel. We all know that Fidel is still probably running the country behind the scenes. Um, but but really, I mean, logically looking at this whole Cold War business, I mean, a any of these guys could have stopped it, you know. I mean, heck, it, it, yeah, okay, the, the U.S., I mean, you know, was, didn't want to be, uh, didn't want to let itself be beat by Russia, and Russia didn't want to let itself be beat by the U.S., okay? So, I mean, part of it, I don't know, part of it, I, I think it's, it, it's all pride. I mean, these guys could have, you know, Lyndon, Kennedy, any of these guys could have swallowed their, Khrushchev, you know, they could have swallowed their pride and said, okay, you know, like Reagan and, and Gorbachev. I mean, Gorbachev could have said, you know, could have said, no, I, I want this to continue and we're going to continue with the Cold War. Um, but Gorbachev said, enough's enough. You know, he he knew when, when to say, okay, you know, time's up. Well, he knew because the economy in Russia was falling apart and Reagan kept putting the military pressure. I did not know. That, Mil that Reagan, Don, was an abolitionist with regard to nuclear weapons. I, I always pictured him with his finger right on the on the thing, you know, the button, ready to fire off. Uh, he was he was a militarist. The, the military loved him. Uh, so, that, that I, but I try to remember that Gatiss didn't he get a medal from George Bush, as uh, you know, defending Bush's policies. But uh, I, I'm willing to give Reagan his due uh, as a negotiator with Gorbachev and moving us toward the end of the. Uh, the war, but he was also militaristic as well. Iran Contra, 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 and so forth. Uh, different things that he pulled too. His hands are not clean. No president's hands are clean. That's it. Now Nixon was interesting. You know, he did make headway with China, and uh, we, we, he recognized China as we should have. 
as we should have. And uh, what got him was at home, of course, Watergate and all that stuff, which many European countries just laughed. They said what he did was nothing. You know, we said, oh, no, you, you're, you know, you tried to go above the law, and he, was, uh, he had to resign or else he would have been removed from office. In the first part of the book, that kind of threw me for a loop. Um, it was right there, right when he was getting into discussing the Korean War, and I uh, thought that part was fascinating. But he put in this scenario about nuclear war and cities that were being attacked over in Asia, and I was going, what? Wait a minute. What is he talking about? And I had to rewind the, the book and, and go back and, and reread it again because it didn't match up to my history. Then I figured, then I went, oh, he's, he's talking about a, this scenario thing that what might, might, what might have been or something like that. Well, that's right. It was, that threw me for a loop for a while, too. Uh, we were fortunate because the, the big five in the U.N., as you guys know, had the veto power. Uh, actually, Truman insisted on the veto power. Everybody thinks the Russians wanted it, except the Russians used it more than anybody else. But the Russians got so mad over the war, they left. And that gave Truman an excuse to say, okay, we'll, we'll be a fighter under the, under the U.N. flag. One wonders if the Russians had vetoed it, I guess we'd have fought under the U.S. flag. We were not going to lose South Korea. Yeah, you know, the thing that – couple couple points um, – one is that when you think back, for example, to the Cuban Missile Crisis and how Fidel probably wasn't really all really that happy having the Soviet missiles stationed in Cuba, but how really close we came, uh, it's pretty scary to think about. And how most of Kennedy's advisors really wanted, uh, you know, <clears throat> really wanted him to use the weapons, and uh, that's pretty scary. And... And communism has pretty much died, but I mean it's interesting because we've got these holdouts. And we, 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 you know, we're hearing now about Kim Il Sung's uh, son becoming the next leader of North Korea, and um, you know that's still a problem. And and um, I agree with Mary Ellen's point uh, that it's. Uh, I think it's. I think the fact that we've got you know that we've got India and. Pakistan and Israel, who all have nuclear weapons, uh, which, as Cheryl points out, which we sold them, and uh, you know the uh, if um, you know if if those if any of those weapons get you know get in the hands of a terrorist, who knows what's going to happen? Um, but it is it's you know it's interesting to look back on this after after you know such. Uh, a long period of time. Don't forget, though, that we're not facing nuclear winter. We, we might, even if they blew up a city or two, uh, um, which would be a terrible thing, and we have the radioactivity, and uh, uh, which would kill many more and, and affect the generations. If we got into a real tete-a-tete, uh, I mean, the Russians got still have thousands of warheads, I guess, and missiles, and we do, but we're we're not. Uh, at each other's throat yet, and uh, uh, I was afraid with our last president that we were get, getting a little, pushing a, the Russians a little hard uh, on their on their territory. Yeah, we had, we're great. I'm grateful that W. Well, he did have his finger on the button, but I'm glad he wasn't around in '63 because he was a cowboy, and he might have he might we might have struck first. Everybody says, 
you know, the United States would never strike first. Don't bet on it. Well, we've certainly seen an example with uh, George W. when he went into, uh, for the weapons of mass destruction, into, our, into Iraq. But I tend to feel a little nervous, too, at this point about Iran and Iraq and everything going on in the Mideast. That at least with Russia, that was kind of the devil you knew. But some of these people, I don't know. Yeah, the thing is, though, you know, part of that is, and this is kind of interesting, this goes back to the Cold War. I mean, we, we sold a lot of them the weapons. And, you know, who we sold weapons to, that all goes back to the Cold War and the fact that us and the Soviets were using all these countries as, as our surrogates. So, you know, it's like, why would Cuba send troops into Angola? Because, uh, you know, they were supporting the Angolan Marxists. So it's, um, in some ways, we're still living with the legacies of all of that. But now, isn't, isn't um, like, like you were saying there, um, you know, that, that we did, because didn't we also put uh, uh, Nor- Noriega in power, and then... Uh, now he's locked up in our jail somewhere. I think, if I remember, if I, uh, because he, you know, he used our weapons against his own people, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, and with Hussein uh, in Iraq, we gave him weapons, right? And then he, uh, you, what he used, he gassed his people and so on. Both sides, Tim is right. Give weapons to these countries and says, let's try it out. Let's push a little harder, and then they, we get self-righteous. Oh my goodness, look what he's doing. Well, we gave him a lot of those weapons. And most of the Cold War, the people that, there well, were the countries that we backed, you know, like um, the Congo, you know, that was a hideous um, country, um, dictatorial country, uh, for the longest time. And, you know, it was like, well, if you're, we don't care, you know, what your human rights record is, um, you know, if you're anti-communist, then come on over to our side. Yeah, and even our support of South Africa was based on the justification for that was that the, you know, the ANC was a communist organization. So it 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 just, uh, you know, that's so much of our policy was um, directed by that. You know, for for such a long period of time, and we're still, unfortunately, living with the. You know, with the fallout of that, Afghanistan, another classic example. Uh, you know, um, we supported the the Mohajedin because they were fighting the Soviets, and uh, the Soviets finally left, and uh, then the Taliban came back in, and you know, we're we're you know still and still stuck in this whole thing all over again. I don't forget the, what he also says is that the Russians backed some pretty bad characters too, and they f- didn't like it either. They uh, like North Korea was the they're probably their their worst, and Romania, and uh, they just didn't like Tito. He was probably a pretty good guy, and you know, you know, backing uh, uh, Cuba that was probably much better run than. I would better back uh, Fidel Castro than I would uh, Pinochet or the uh, the generals in, in, in Argentina and, and Honduras and some of the other things that went on under our sponsorship. Oh, right. Batista, you know, was awful. He was a dictator, and uh, Fidel cleaned up prostitution, got those guys educated. Uh, you know, I'm not 
saying I, I support communism, but he cleaned, he cleaned up the island a little bit. Uh, Don, we're running out of time, I think. What, what is your pleasure for next time? Okay. Um, I've been exploring, and I switched. I was going to do the, um, unless people really want to do the First World War, I've decided to uh, do uh, the, the um, Andrew Jackson and his Indian Wars. Let me give you a little rundown on this. I'm yeah, okay, and this is Andrew Jackson and his Indian Wars. It's DB54210. I hope you were able to play back. So it's DB5410. 54210, I think you said. You're moving that microphone around. I don't know if that introduction is going to survive, but we heard it. And uh, Don, we thank you. I can't believe that he saved the Indians, but anyway, I'm willing to read it. He defends it pretty good. He says what happened to the Senecas and so on. And they were all gone. Well, I guess if we call moving you, if they, you want, it's like moving Mary Ellen from uh, Arizona to North Dakota against her wishes, and we're saying, don't worry, Mary Ellen, we're saving you. Who was the author, please, and how do you spell it? Okay, uh, that's very good. And uh, hold on. I won't move the mic and um uh okay that's the reader okay it's robert v r e m i n i remeni robert v remeni he's written six books on andrew jackson and this is kind of a special he had a trilogy and then he had the banks and the election and the battle of new orleans which sounds pretty good and to double check it's db Five four two one zero. Well, thank you, Don. I'm out of here. I got a call, and Rob just dropped that in our uh, Dropbox. That'd be great.